production. Hello, A Life of Greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like-minded people to give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. Search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg for daily inspiration, videos and behind-the-scenes footage. Search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. For years, Dr. Mark Epstein kept his beliefs as a Buddhist separate from his work as a psychiatrist. Content to use his training in mindfulness as a private resource, he trusted that the Buddhist influence could and should remain invisible. But as he became more forthcoming with his patients about his personal spiritual leanings, he was surprised to learn how many were eager to learn more. The divisions between the psychological, emotional and the spiritual he soon realised were not as distinct as one might think. In this heartfelt conversation, Mark and I discuss the journey for personal meaning beyond the ego, the need for both Western medicine and Eastern philosophies, and the quest for universal purpose beyond the material. Stop digging around in the past, trying to figure out what made you the way you are, at least for now, and focus on what's happening in your mind at the moment. Try to learn how to be with yourself just as you are. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Mark's wisdom inspires in a world in which his voice and vision feel as resonant as ever before. He shares wise advice about taking the stigma away from antidepressant medication, something so often shunned in the wellness community, and embracing the messiness of life so as to exist between the joy and pain of a single experience. My hope is that this conversation guides you towards the many tools available to help you with your mental health and a greater sense of meaning and purpose. Mark Epstein, you are a psychiatrist, but also a Buddhist teacher, both two very different things. I would like to know, in your early years of life, what led you to both practices? It was a surprise to me, coming, coming to both Buddhism and to psychiatry. I came to Buddhism in my freshman year at university. I met a girl who I liked, and she was taking an introduction to world religion class. And it had never occurred to me to take an introduction to world religion class, but I followed her into the class. And uh, the entire first semester was Eastern religion, so it was Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism. And the Buddhism uh, material was like, spoke to me. And uh, the first, we read a, a Buddhist collection of verse called the Dhammapada, where they describe the anxious mind or the untrained mind as like a fish flapping on dry ground all day long. And I thought, oh, that's what my mind is like. So that led me to a further study of Buddhism. I found whatever courses I could find. 
at Harvard, where I was an undergraduate. And that just led me deeper and deeper into one Buddhist teacher and meditation and idea and psychology to another. Uh, so I went deep into the Buddhist thing in my 20s and then had to figure out what I was going to do with my life. So I decided that, uh, oh, maybe I could be a psychotherapist because I'm interested in the mind and I learned so much from uh, my forays into meditation. So maybe there's a way to apply that in psychotherapy. And I talked to a bunch of people who said, oh, well, if you, you're trying to do a weird thing, bringing this Buddhist way of thinking into psychotherapy, that you'll have the most freedom if you go to medical school and become a psychiatrist, because people respect that the most, the medical degree. I chafed against that for a while, but finally I surrendered and uh, went to medical school with the, with the idea of becoming a psychiatrist and of blending these two worlds. And how did you find, knowing obviously what you did about the Buddhist traditions and the Buddhist way of being, then going and doing that psychiatry and the hardcore medicine degree that that is, did you find at all that your mind was saying, oh, I don't believe that to be true or there's another way of looking at it or did you just accept both of them as they were and use them for what you thought was the best purpose? The, the interesting thing was that they didn't feel that different to me and that was the big surprise. All the Western psychology and Western psychotherapy, Western psychiatry that I was learning, I was looking at it through, uh, through the prism of Buddhist thought already because that's what I had really learned about. Before Buddhism, I didn't really know much about anything. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I was always looking for how they were similar, how they could work together, how they could help each other. So, for instance, when I started reading Freud about how should physicians practicing psychoanalysis pay attention to their patients, Freud's instructions sounded Buddhist to me. Mm. He wrote, the, the psychoanalyst should uh, suspend judgment and give impartial attention to everything there is to observe. So if, if, that, if I was reading that and I didn't know it was Freud, it would sound like a Zen yes. Buddhist teacher or something. So I was very touched by that. And, uh, and that made me feel like, oh, I can, I, I've learned a little bit from meditation, how to look at my own mind, how to be with my own emotional reactivity. If I apply what I've learned on myself to my patients, maybe that's an equivalent of psychotherapy. So that was motivating me all the way through. Then I could learn about the medications, you know, I could learn about severe mental illness, which is important to know about if you're going to be a doctor, schizophrenia and manic depression and panic attacks and how to treat them. So uh, there, there was Western scientific stuff for me to learn. And so I'm glad I have that knowledge. But the, the Buddhist thing was pushing me all the way through. Knowing what you do from the spiritual perspective of Buddhism, when you see patients that are suffering with some hardcore mental illnesses, be it schizophrenia, manic depression, anxiety, but in a, in a really serious way, is there a spiritual component in that? What, how do you speak to them? I would find that fascinating to hear. Well, I, I always think about, I don't know if you've, if you've ever seen these big paintings that come out of Tibetan Buddhism of, of the Medicine Buddha. The Medicine Buddha is a big blue Buddha that is usually painted with 
big vats or urns of medicinal plants and tinctures and pills sort of spilling out of the urns. So I always think of the medicine Buddha when confronted with severe mental illness, like what would that Buddha be doing for those patients? Giving, giving the medicines that might really help, but also doing it with kindness, doing it with sympathy, doing it with empathy for the suffering that those kinds of conditions bring out. Whether that makes a difference or not, that added bit of uh, kindness for, or whether the treatment is really all in the drug, it's, it, I think it's impossible to pull them apart. But that's how I think about it. I, I certainly don't shy away from trying to give the medicines that will help the most. What got you into Buddhism? Obviously, you said there was that, that girl and then you went to the religion <laughs> class. But, but yes. when you did get into Buddhism, what was it about it that really drew you in so much so that it's been such a big pillar in your life up until today? Well, with the fish flapping on dry ground, I, I was very conscious of the anxiousness of my own mind and of my own tendency to worry. And so I knew I needed something, even at that young age, relatively young age. So I remember I went to the Unity Health Services to talk to a psychotherapist, and I went for a couple of sessions to see what therapy would be like, if it would help me. The uh, therapist I saw was very thoughtful and seemed smart and talked to me about my family, where I came from, what I was worrying about. I saw him, I think, three times, and then he said to me, oh, I, it's pretty clear, I think you're suffering from uh, what we call an Oedipus complex. And I had no idea what that was or what he was talking about. But I was sort of relieved that whatever it was that was bothering me had a name. But I went from there out to a university, a summer institute in Boulder, Colorado, called Naropa Institute. It was the first summer of Naropa Institute, which is like a Buddhist summer camp where uh, all, all these uh, renowned, mostly Western, but some Asian Buddhist teachers were convening for the first time. And I met my first teachers of mindfulness or insight meditation or Vipassana, it's called Joseph Goldstein, Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg, and an American psychologist named Ramdas, who had been, he'd been Richard Alpert before he was Ramdas. And they taught me the beginning practices of mindfulness. And they, they basically said to me, stop digging around in the past, trying to figure out what made you the way you are, at least for now, and focus, just focus on what's happening in your mind at the moment. Try to learn how to be with yourself just as you are. And that, that was sort of the beginning practice of mindfulness. That gave me something practical that I could do for myself to learn about the qualities of my own mind so that made more sense to me at that time in my life than my uh, early forays into psychotherapy. I later came back around to begin to appreciate what could be so great about psychotherapy, but the, the Buddhist thing touched me first. Mm. We love Rabdas on this podcast, and if he was still alive, we would have loved to have had him on. But we have had Sharon on and Krishna Das and a lot of his friends. And I always like to ask people what they learned from Ramdas. What did you learn from him? He was such a magnificent teacher. Well, see, I was lucky enough to know him when I was quite young. I met him that first summer at Naropa. 
my, my psychology professor at Harvard, whose name was David McClellan, was the person who had hired uh, Richard Alpert and Timothy Leary to mm. teach there, you know, a decade before, and then had to fire them. And he, but he then became my teacher, and he had stayed close to Ramdas, so and so that when Ramdas came back to Cambridge, to Massachusetts, where the university is, he would stay in the house of David McClellan, and I would go over there and hang out. So I got to know him in a in a personal way. So I, I could see that he wasn't a saint. I could see that he was just like a quote-unquote normal person like I was with his own anxieties and narcissistic whatever and and for me that was a great relief because it took away that sense that I had to become somebody else some perfect version of myself he gave me permission in a way to leave myself alone because I wasn't striving to become some idealized version of what a spiritual person was supposed to be. And then Ramdas stayed. I was close to him in those early years. I took some classes with him, meditation classes that he would teach. And then I didn't see him for about 20 years until after he had had a stroke that mm-hmm. took his golden tongue away and partially paralyzed him. Uh, but I went to visit him about a year after the stroke. And I was maybe in my mid-40s by then, but I think to Ramdas, I, I was always 21 years old. I think he always saw me that way. So I remember he teased me when I got there, and he was like, oh, so Mark, are you uh, like a Buddhist psychiatrist now? Like poking yeah. fun. And I, I was like, yes, Ramdas, I, I guess you could call me that. And, and then he said this thing to me that I always remember, that I, I put into this most recent book of mine. He said... Uh, do you see them, meaning my patients, do you see them as already free? Do you see them as already free? Ugh, and beautiful. He, and, and he had to say it really slowly because he had mm. had the stroke and it was hard for him to find yes. the word, but he said it. And I didn't under, it took me a, a beat to understand what he was asking me. But there's this idea in Buddhism of Buddha nature, like what was your face before you were born, kind of the original wisdom or love that's inherent in uh, in each one of us and i think he was saying something very profound really about what the buddhist world had given me which was that yes in fact i when people come to see me i don't only see their neuroses i don't only see their defenses i'm looking to to feel their original whatever, their original vitality, their original face, their original freedom. So I carried that with me, his voice, mm. his, uh, his saying that. And then I saw him the year before he died. I, I went and spent some time with him in Maui. So that, that renewed my appreciation of him. Because by then he had really become the person that he was always pretending yes. to be. He, he actually achieved some something profound. It was interesting because I heard him say that he wouldn't wish the stroke on anyone, but the stroke brought him inwards, which was one of the most wondrous experiences for him. I mean, how many people would have a stroke and look at it like that? He's, Nobody. Yeah, 
he's just <laughs> no, amazing. And he didn't just say it. He no, really, you he know, meant it. He really enacted it. He really enacted it. And it's interesting because you said like he had a golden tongue and I've heard a lot of his lectures and read his books and he was unbelievable. But almost when he had the stroke and he had that aphasia and he couldn't talk much, yeah. everything he then said to you was so unbelievably profound that he used those small amount of words he was able to say and every single one of them counted. I just think that's unbelievable. Yeah. The other thing that was noticeable about him in those later years was that he was obviously in a lot of pain. Yeah. Really uncomfortable, all kinds of things going wrong in his body. But when people would come to see him, even the, the, the young men who were helping him move around and go to the bathroom and whatnot, he was completely interested in the other person like he just put all of his attention the way maybe I try to do as a therapist he was just doing it everywhere like just was never about him about his own distress or his own suffering it was always like even when he needed help doing things it was always about what's going on with you yeah what can I give you he's a beautiful person to look to for always bettering himself and as you said he wasn't a guru or whatever you may call it, but he was always looking to get closer to God and to just be that, that, that light and improving, improving, improving. And in his suffering, he was probably at that state of nirvana, which just sounds like how can that be, that, that the dark and the light together, but he brought them together to be such a beautiful thing. That dichotomy was, was perfect. Well, he was under a lot of pressure to be a guru. Yeah. And sometimes he really liked that. I think he really enjoyed the, the cross between being a stand-up comedian and a guru. <laughs> I think he really enjoyed being a performer and being important to people. And then he was always working against like the egoic kind of satisfaction that, that uh, comes from that, that he definitely was aware of. He could also see what the downside of that was. So yes. he was always kind of undercutting that tendency in himself. So I, th- I think that that's, to me, that's the dark and the light that you're talking about, that he could work with that instead of giving himself over to uh, just the egoic yes. satisfaction of being such an important person to so many. Absolutely. And Mark, you have your fabulous new book, called The Zen of Therapy, and it talks about what we're discussing at the moment, which is you using psychotherapy and Buddhism, putting it together, and how you talk with patients. There's so much gold in it. And I just want to read, there was a blurb that's on the book, but it just summarizes the book really well, and it's, it's so beautiful, so I just want to read it. Throughout this deeply personal inquiry, one which weaves together the wisdom of two worlds, Dr. Epstein illuminates the therapy relationship as spiritual friendship and reveals how a therapist can help patients cultivate the sense that there is something magical, something wonderful and something to trust running through our lives, no matter how fraught they have been or might become. For when we realise how readily we have misinterpreted ourselves, when we stop clinging to our falsely conceived constructs, when we touch the ground of being, we come home. I think that's just beautiful and summarises really well what your book is about. I believe you putting psychotherapy and spirituality together, the Buddhist teachings especially, is such a wonderful thing. But how have you found that your patients 
have enjoyed you doing that? Some of them have enjoyed me doing that. So I, I hope they've enjoyed me doing that. Some patients have come to me specifically because they want a therapist who is comfortable talking about the spiritual side of things. And they've sought me out for that. Some people have come to me as a therapist purely because they're having trouble in their marriage or they're having trouble finding a partner or they're fighting with their children or their parents or just for, for what would seem to be just psychotherapy reasons and they have no idea about the spiritual aspect of my thinking. And one of the things that I decided when I set out to become a therapist was that even if I'm a Buddhist psychiatrist, I'm not going to be proselytizing. I'm not going to be laying any kind of spiritual trip on people. I'm there for them. So whatever, whatever I can do to help them, I want to, I want to try to do or be. So with, with people who I feel might be open to the Buddhist side of things, the spiritual side of things, they might be interested in meditation or whatever, I'm uh, happy to tell them what's helped me. So I don't, I don't hesitate if I feel like it's the right thing to self-disclose. That's the language that we use as therapists. But I try to be careful about doing that where someone might not be interested. <laughs> so, so in the book, the book is a, it's like a, a mosaic or a kaleidoscopic version of a year of my therapy practice. I tried to pick out uh, one session a week for a year where something that to me felt spiritual was happening in the office. It might be a very tiny opening in somebody. They may not even call it spiritual, but I, to me, I knew that it was. So I, I tried to write down and then talk about what that felt like from the point of view of the therapist. Because people are always asking me, well, how do you bring your spiritual leanings into the therapy? Do you teach your patients to meditate? Do you sit with them for, quietly for uh, 20 minutes before you start? And I was always saying no to that. No, it's much more subtle. If it's going to creep in, it has to come in through my being. If it's affected, if it's made me any more authentic as a person, that has to communicate itself somehow in the therapy. So that's what I've tried to do. And some people notice, and some, for some people, that's just Mark. And, and if I'm helping them, good. And if not, I'm just frustrating. But don't you think, and I know it would be the particular person that would appreciate that, when they look at things and know that there's more to life than them or them being an isolated person and then someone else, rather than looking at us as a collective and a, a, a consciousness, yeah. it gives you a wider understanding than you're here in life more as this kind of pawn in a game. Yeah. There is a way of being that's, that's bigger than ourselves. Well, here, I'll read you something that a, a patient of mine just sent. I'd love to hear it. So... This patient is one of the patients who I wrote about in the, in the book. I changed, I changed the identifying characteristics and so on. So, and that in itself has been an interesting thing because the, all the people I wrote about, I had to show them 
what I wrote about the session and then what I wrote, what I thought. There's a commentary or a reflection in the yes. book about each section. So I went back and forth with my patients to make sure that everything I was saying was okay with them and reasonably accurate. I would change anything they wanted me to change and about what, what was the pseudonym I was going to give them and all of that. So th- this person, in the aftermath of all of that, wrote, wrote this to me just the other day. So she said, Dear Dr. Epstein, when my sister asked, what's it like to work with Mark Epstein? I said, I never know how a session will go, but I can rely on having an, an experience of shift. There will be a moment, a suspension of conversation and time in which I become disoriented to myself, lose track of whatever felt pressingly painful, and start down a new line of travel. Like a tectonic collision opens cracks in the Earth's crust, a discontinuity, sometimes jolting, makes room for light where I had seen only opacity. A quake, a little shivering shock has blown open the dulling petrification of habit. Waves of liquefying unfamiliarity, unbalance, exhilarate, shake, and loose from itself. My eyes, having adapted to the dark, I must take time to re-see the newly lit scape, find landmarks, topographic clues, crop circles that may have appeared. It is a soundless juncture followed by a rush of warming relief, a softening, feelings of gratitude, wonder at the power of presence. You were there to hold my bruised heart while my mind found new footing. What is it like to work with him? It is labor and it is love. Oh, that's so beautiful. I thought so. I was like, oh my God, I don't think so. (laughs) But thank you. It's amazing. There's something about the discontinuity. I think that's what I'm, then that's what I was trying to write about. Yeah. Like, what is it that I'm doing? Like, I can see where people are stuck sometimes. And then, then just, you can't just say, oh, you're stuck there. You have to like, do, it's like an improvisational dance or something. You have to do something to let them see how they're stuck. And then, and then can they unstick? And how? And what can I say with humor or with insight or with love? What can I do that can help them to sort of see the light that's inside of mm. the constriction? That's what I think she's trying to describe. There. And I think there's something in the fact that people want to know that they're going to be okay. I think people get really panicked if they well, if they have anxiety or depression, they're in, in a state that obviously they don't want to be in and there's that feeling of that they can't get out of that. And then coming to someone like you and, and, and then looking at you and wanting to know you will be okay. Well, that's where, you know, that's where the drugs can be helpful. <laughs> Uh, because, you know, like, like someone came to me um, six months after having their second baby and that's t- totally high-functioning person. You would never think of them as depressed. But once I got to talking to her, I could tell she was depressed. But the idea of a postpartum depression never, never crossed her mind, you know. But she wasn't right even though she was highly functional and super smart. And, uh, but there was something, something, some kind of darkness there and a ruminative, obsessive kind of thinking that was getting in the way of 
everything. So she needed medicine, and that, and and I could I could promise her she was going to be okay. And she doubted me, you know. And then a week or two later, she was like, "Oh my God, I had no idea." So that wow. that's very that's why yes. having that kind of background could also be helpful. It's more it's more subtle with less severe kinds of situations, but. But yes, that belief that people can be okay, are already okay, even in the midst of their suffering. Yes. What do you think about in the wellness world, how there's a lot of stigma about medication and antidepressant medication? Obviously, you're a psychiatrist and you give drugs, but what do you think about people who come in and they might be deeply spiritual and for some reason, they're holding on to this idea, I shouldn't need that, I shouldn't need that. What do you say to them or anyone listening? I've seen a lot of that because of my Buddhist background, a lot of um, Buddhist teachers, people with a lot of experience with meditation who have um, hoped that that would be enough to cure their anxiety, their depression, their panic, whatever. They trust me, so they come to me a little bit ashamed that the meditation hasn't done the trick and that they might actually need something else. So what I, what I think is that there's a real human tendency to set whatever it is, Prozac or psychoanalysis or mindfulness or yoga, to set the one thing up as the panacea that's going to cure everything. Mm. And, and there's no one thing that can cure everything. So we're, we're bound to be disappointed. And then when we get disappointed with the one thing, we churn on it. So, so the antidepressants, they're good for some kinds of depression. They really help some kinds of depression. They don't cure everything. And they give a lot of side effects. If you don't need them, then they just get in the way. So there was a period where everyone wanted Prozac until 80% of the people who tried it, it didn't do anything for. Yeah. And I'm a little worried in the wellness world not just with the anti-medication prejudice, but that mindfulness, which is now being embraced, is not going to cure everything either. Yeah. So then people are going to turn against mindfulness and losing, losing what it's good for, not bothering with, to try to find what it's good for. So I try to find the middle ground in all of this for people. Mark, you say our identities are coalesced around our traumas. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah. Trauma is, is a whole concept that has come into vogue. I mean, we, we've had it since the First World War, since soldiers who were obviously traumatized in the war started showing symptoms. And then this idea of post-traumatic stress, we became something that people could identify as a real thing, a real syndrome. But in the Buddhist time, 2,500 years ago, they didn't have the word trauma. But the Buddha, when he gave his first psychological teachings, he gave them in the form of the Four Noble Truths. The, the first truth, which is his diagnosis of the problem, he just used a single word, which was dukkha, as there's a reality to our lives, which is dukkha, he said. Dukkha is ordinarily translated as suffering. So then the Buddhism got a bad name by saying, like, life is suffering, and so where's the happiness, and is the Buddha denying happiness? No. But the, the word dukkha, if you take it apart, it actually means hard to face. 
the Buddha was saying there's always an aspect to life that's hard to face. Ka is face. Dukkha is, is hard to face. Sukha is like sweet to face. So that's the uh, Sanskrit word for happiness or joy or sweetness. So what the Buddha is, the Buddha is talking about trauma, I think, by saying that old age, illness, death, separation, loss, illness. There, there's a, even in a blessed life, we have to face those things at some point. And so the, the reality of it is always running like an underground river. We're always a little looking off to the side, like uh, wary of, of what might come. Now with COVID, we're in the middle of a like worldwide thing that's hard to face. But So I would call all of that trauma. From the psychological world, the Western psychological world, they talk about big T trauma, which is like war, earthquakes, uh, tsunami, terrorism, fires, terrible things that happen to people. Big T trauma, where you get post-traumatic stress. But then they also talk about little T traumas, which, are, which uh, the other word for that is developmental trauma. Things that happen when we're young, or things that didn't happen when we're young, but maybe should have happened. An, an absence that was there, like if your parents were getting divorced when you were four years old, or if your father was an alcoholic, or if your mother was depressed, or if you just had to go to school and you were freaked out because uh, the other kids were making fun of you. Like those little but, but super meaningful, uh, difficult things that happen when we're young we call them relational, developmental, or little t traumas. And the tendency, as the Buddha pointed out, is, is to look away from those things. We want to pretend they didn't exist. We want to be normal. We want to try to just like fit in. But the, the underlying anxieties, fears, shame, uh, the underlying feelings that come from those kinds of uh, situations tend to lurk. They tend to hang out somewhere in our bodies or in our unconscious. Uh, and then, like in post-traumatic stress, they come out in our intimate relationships, in yeah. our family, really. You know, when we're, in our, when we're taking an exam in school, you think we're going to fail, whatever. So both the Buddhist psychologists and the Western psychotherapists have found that training yourself to face that which you would rather ignore it can be healing for yes. trauma. Someone was actually talking to me about that yesterday, about rather than running away from the fear and trying to distract yourself, you run into it and that's the way to move through it. I think the process is very, very gradually dipping your first your toe and then your foot and then your leg into the water, into the feeling, very gradually desensitizing yourself to that which you might have been dissociating from. So it's getting to know yourself in all of your complexity, mm. the difficult feelings as well as the easier ones. And, and that's, what, that's what a lot of meditation is actually like, and that's what a good psychotherapy can often be like. Why do you believe our mental health is a multi-tonged approach? I mean, mental health, 
we need all the help that we can get to even to even have some kind of mental equilibrium rather than uh, feeling like we should be healthy all the time i i think mental equilibrium means that we can tolerate an entire range of feelings it's not possible to be without worry to be without anxiety to be without anger to be even without rage to be without lust i think the idea that we eliminate those uh, disturbing emotions, I think that's naive. I like to talk about becoming partners with the capacities that constitute us, so that we, instead of being at odds with various aspects of ourselves, we are united as one person, carrying all of these different tendencies, then we learn how to not just be with them, but how to use them for what they're good for. So in order to do that, I mean... We, we need all the teachers, all the help, all the books, all the practices that, that are good for us. We have to find the ones that work for us to become the, the creative souls that we're capable of being. What are your daily mental health practices? Well, I spend a lot of my time doing therapy with people. Yeah. So, so that's, that's part of what I was trying to write about in the book that we, we think of meditation as an, as an intrapersonal, intrapsychic process, something we do inside of ourselves. But why can't we think of it also as an interpersonal, a relational, two-person process? So the main thing I'm doing in a daily way is sitting with people and being a therapist. So that's a practice in itself. Then uh, when I can fit in meditating, I love to meditate. I've tried, since my kids were about 10 years old, I've tried to go away on a silent uh, week-long meditation retreat every year. Uh, That got interrupted by COVID two years ago. Uh, I tried to get outside and go for a walk. I like doing uh, Iyengar yoga and a little Pilates. I watch a lot of sports and uh, television. (laughs) I need to have my coffee in the morning. I try to eat right. What meditation do you do? I do a version of mindfulness or or Vipassana uh, insight meditation, as I learned from uh, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and Jack Hornfield. Yeah. We touched on this earlier, but I'd like to go into more depth about it. It's about the concept that you talk about in the book, which is this gurifying and why we can look to others for answers, but it really is our deep knowing or higher self that has the answers anyway. And I find that a really interesting concept because obviously people would come to you because you're a doctor or they can go to India and sit with someone who calls themselves a guru or maybe who is a guru or look to a psychic for the answers or to their chiropractor or physio or you can put anyone who you're going to for advice in that gurifying way. Why can that be a slippery slope? Oh, well, so many reasons why. Uh, just, just look at all the scandals with all the gurus yeah. who, uh, for the past 50 years. The best advice I ever got about this was from Jack Hornfield, who said, uh, take what's good and leave the rest. Yeah. And that little section of the book where I talk about that tendency to search for the guru, that came out of a, a class that I was teaching with uh, Professor Robert Thurman, who's a professor of Tibetan studies at Columbia University and parenthetically Uma Thurman's father. But he and I have taught together for many years. 
And uh, someone came to that class clutching the uh, Yogananda's book, yeah. uh, Autobiography of a Yogi, and said, you know, the main thing in this book is that you have to find your guru. And I haven't found my guru, and where can I find my guru, and do I need to find my guru? Professor Thurman gave a, gave a wonderful answer. He said, first, because he speaks, he speaks Tibetan, he knows Sanskrit, he knows the derivation of all of these words and so on. He said, well, you know, a guru means heavy. He said in the original languages, it's like, it's a sort of paternalistic concept that's coming from far back in time, where the, the guru is like a, 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 like a heaviness that sits on your forehead and tells you what to do. He said, the, the real guru is inside of you. And then he said, in Tibet, they say, the best guru lives three valleys over, because in the guru meditations, you have to imagine this perfected being. If you live too close to the guru, then you see, oh, he's just a regular, he's got all these problems. How can you imagine him as a perfected being? So it's better if you don't know the guru. If you're going to do guru yoga, it's better if you don't know the guru too well, because it's really your imagination that has to create the guru. And then I said, well, I sort of think the opposite, that what has helped me, and I mentioned this to you earlier, what's helped me is I was lucky enough to get to know uh, all of these guru figures Ramdas being one of them, uh, as people early in my life so that I couldn't idealize them. So knowing them as real people stopped that process yeah. in me and pushed me back into myself. So we all wish we could get the answer from somebody else. And it's wonderful to have a lot of wise people around who you can collect uh, answers from and then com compare them and uh, see what works for you. That, that's why even taking from Freud and taking from Buddha yes. has been good for me because I've had to carve my own path. And everyone, everyone in their own way has to carve their own path. Well, it's very true. And I always say that to a lot of people that ask me for advice or ask me for different teachers or following my teachings. I like to find a bit of everything. Like I have studied different teachers for many, many years, read many books and it's not always in the spiritual realm. It can be in the psychology realm or medicine. But I take out the bits, like Jack Cornfield said, that work for me and then run with those. And if there are things that they say that I think I don't quite agree, then that's absolutely fine. And I don't think the rest of their teachings are bad. But with anything, people listening to this podcast today, there'll be some things that resonate with them and that they'll remember and they'll run with. And there might be things that don't sit well with them. But it's really important, I think, not to just look at one person and then take everything from that one person. It's a good idea to just have a look around and diversify and then pick what works for you. Well, and that holds for therapy too. That's an interesting thing about therapy because oftentimes the patient disagrees with what the therapist says or thinks, or sometimes the therapist disappoints the patient because they're, you know, missing the point. And those disjunctions, that, that's where the therapist becomes a real person, not just an idealized figure. And so working that out, like therapy is like a little laboratory where, that, where that, those kinds of uh, relationships can actually be talked about and understood and worked with and uh, made to reveal some kind of wisdom. Impermanence is a big teaching in Buddhism and the whole idea of uncertainty. And obviously yeah. the world, as it has been for the last couple of years, has been full of that. How 
do you teach patients how to get comfortable with that feeling of uncertainty and make peace with it? Because really, as the saying goes, the only thing we have is this present moment. Well, I don't think anyone is really comfortable with uncertainty. Mm. So, or impermanence. I think we're all scared of both of those things. In many, many people, there's a kind of rush to normal where we think we have to pretend that we're not scared or, or that we are comfortable. So it's sort of paradoxical, but I think the first step in being comfortable with uncertainty is to recognize how uncomfortable we are with it, yeah. you know, instead of, instead of pretending. And, the, and, and then when, once we can sort of set that as the ground, okay, we're all in this together and nobody really knows. And the COVID thing is such a, such a stark example of that. We really are all in it together, and no one does know what is the virus going to do next. Are we out of it? Are we not out of it? But that's, life altogether is like that, really, when you dig down. So uh, to be able to set that as, okay, that, that, that's baseline, then how do we cope? And that's where the, the present moment thing starts to kick in. Like when there's so much uncertainty, so much impermanence, what, where is there to stand? There's just now. There's only now. So, and if I'm busy worrying about when is it going to end and how much longer do I have on earth and so on, I'm going to miss this moment. So I, I always tell this story. When, when I was in my 20s and first traveling to Asia, I went with, with Ram Dass actually and Jack Kornfield and Joseph to visit the, the monk in Thailand, who uh, he was like the abbot of the monastery that Jack Cornfield had studied at for two years. And we, we went for a couple of days and stayed in the monastery, and we gathered one lunchtime to ask him for a teaching, basically. And uh, he gave this beautiful teaching, which is about what you're asking me about, where he picked up his drinking glass, and he said, uh, you see this glass? I love this glass. It holds the water admirably. When I strike it, it makes a lovely sound. When the sun shines on it, it reflects the light beautifully. He said, but when my elbow knocks it off the shelf and it falls and breaks, or when the wind blows and it falls and breaks, I say, of course, because uh, I know that the glass is already broken. For me, the glass is already broken. Uh, and, and I thought that was the end of the story, you know, okay, the glass is already broken. But then he said, but... Because I know that the glass is already broken, every minute with it is precious. Mm. Every minute with it is precious. And that's where the real Buddhist teaching is. Not that impermanence, we're all going to break, but every minute with what we have is precious. How can, can we really live like that? That's so, so beautiful. What are your favorite Buddhist teachings? Well, that, that's one of them. Mm. That's one of them. Ramdas saying to me, do you see them as already free? That's another one. He, he also always used to say, uh, you're not who you think you are. And, and for me, because I was so much in my head, uh, that also was extremely useful. Like, if I'm not who I think I am, then who am I? And the, the who am I, the being able not to know, that's, a, I think, a fundamental Buddhist teaching. Like that that there's nothing wrong with the pursuit of knowledge, obviously, but 
but there's nothing wrong with not knowing either. Mm-hmm. So to be able to be able to truly not know, like like who am I? Like that that's a big Buddhist question. Who am I? And there's no good answer. Mm-hmm. Like they they talk about. Um, Asking that question really deeply in meditation is like a dog chasing its own tail. Like you go round and round. There's the you that's watching and looking and asking, and then there's the you that is the object of the question. Like, who, who am I? That double thing is really big mm-hmm. in Buddhism. The one reflecting the other, chasing the other. So it's supposed to make you a little bit dizzy until you finally you can't take it anymore, <laughs> and then you just give up. And that it's within the giving up, you, there, maybe there's some kind of insight. Some kind of Buddhist insight that, that we think exists, or and hope exists, or maybe maybe it doesn't. But that's the hope that it comes in. Then, what do you believe, Mark, is the purpose of the human experience? To learn about love. Yeah. What's your definition of God or source or higher being? All my years of Buddhist training. We don't think about God as supreme being or anything. So again, we think about God the way I was talking about guru before. That God, God, God is your true nature. Mm. So, oh, so what is your true nature? And this, the same with soul. Like, like Buddhism grew up in a time when those concepts were so strong that the Buddha came along and tried to subvert them. So, so. He was saying, you're, you're so sure about what God is, you're so sure about what the soul is, let me tell you, you don't know. That really your true nature has something to do with, with emptiness. But uh, the word he used for emptiness, is, if you take that word apart, it's the word that describes a pregnant womb. So it's not an empty emptiness, it's, a, it's an emptiness that's full of potential. Yeah. So, so, that, so think about it that way. That's beautiful. You know, we're like a vessel. We're a vessel that's full of potential. What's your favorite prayer? There's a whole Buddhist practice uh, um, called metta or yes. loving, loving kindness that I've sort of shortened in my own mind to thinking about a specific person, if they come to mind. May she be happy. May she be healthy. May she be free. Happy, healthy, and free. So yeah. sometimes, you know, if I'm having trouble sleeping or I'm thinking about my family or my patients or people from uh, my past who I'm not in touch with anymore or people who have died, may they be happy, may they be healthy, may they be free. I love that. What's the most mystical experience that you have ever had? When I did one of my first meditation retreats where... All day long, you're supposed to be whatever you're doing, sitting, walking, eating, lying down, uh, standing up, going to the bathroom. You're supposed to be trying to be mindful, trying to keep your uh, watchful attention on what's actually happening in the moment, which is very hard to do. But the, the sort of beginning meditation practice is you focus that attention on the sensation of the breath. So when you breathe in, you try to feel the sensation of the breath going into your nostrils. When you breathe out, you try to feel the sensation of the breath leaving the nostrils. And then there's a pause after the out-breath before the next in-breath where you feel your two lips touching each other. So I was just doing that practice, like, okay, they say to do this, so I'm going to do it the best I could. In, out, touching, touching. 
And after like three or four days of, and it's not sitting and meditating all day long, but probably eight to 10 hours of sitting and meditating. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, my, you know, the words won't do it justice, but it's basically my heart or my body was filled with love. Not for anyone in particular, but just like filled with, it wasn't just love, it was sort of like, I think the Buddhist word that they use to talk about it, because it's a known feeling, is rapture. Mm. So like joy and rapture. But, so, I, but it was like this incredible, I'd never felt anything like this before. It was very concrete. And it went on for, you know, a couple of hours anyway. And it took me totally by surprise and really drove home the point that I was not who I thought I was. Mm. Like, where did this come from? And then I, I, I went rushing to uh, whoever was teaching the retreat. Oh, this you know, great thing happened. And they're like, oh, yeah, go, go back and sit some more. And then I spent any number of meditation hours and, and retreats in uh, subsequent years trying to recreate that yeah. feeling, which, you know. But it, it had a profound impact on me. I was like, I knew, okay, this meditation really does do something. Yeah. It really did, it really did something. I actually haven't had a dissimilar feeling in meditation. It's an unbelievable feeling and you do try and recreate it. But then I remember my teacher saying like, if you try to recreate, it's not going to happen. So you need to just let go and not think about it. Yeah. And if it happens yeah. again, it happens naturally or in a different way. So I always keep that in mind. Yeah, I had one great teacher who said to me when I, I came, sort of uh, grudgingly admitting that that's what I was spending my time doing in meditation, trying to find this feeling that I knew was there. But, and he said to me, Mark, don't chase her, let her find you. Yeah. And, and I was like, why is he gendering it like that? But, 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 but I knew, because I, I, I there's something erotic about the feeling when he knew that, and that's why he was gendering it for me, being a, yes. a heterosexual man. That, that, and so it really touched me when he said it that way. I was like, oh, yeah, okay, this guy understands my mind. Yeah, wow. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness is the ordinary life that's uh, led consciously. Like going back to what Ajahn Chah said with the broken glass, like every minute with it is precious. Mm. That would be greatness for me. Mark Epstein, thank you so much for all the wisdom shared in our conversation today. You're so kind to spend this time with me. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.